Well, good morning again. Doing well? My name is John. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you and I serve Mission Church as the, the lead pastor, I'm honored and excited to be with you this morning in this context, especially as we continue in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. Last week we concluded with chapter 1 as we went through Paul's magnificent, magnificent prayer for the believers in Ephesians and specifically broken into three weeks as he's praising God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And now this morning we enter into chapter Two. And we've entitled this series through the book of Ephesians, God's Plan for God's People. You see, did you know that God has a plan for His people? In fact, He, he, he most definitely does. And despite our brokenness, despite our rebellion, regardless of our weaknesses, He pleases and plans to use the church to transform the world. You see, Jesus has triumphed over the powers of darkness. He has given Authority over all powers and all rulers. And it is God's plan to unite things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And this cosmic plan of God is being displayed in and accomplished in and through us, the church. Now, if you have a Bible, please open in Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, please go ahead and grab one off of the bookshelf um, and hold on to that. That can be yours to take home. Um, I don't know if there's any Scripture journals left, but there may be some Scripture journals on the back table as well. Just a book of Ephesians. You can take that as well. Um, But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And when you're there, if you are able, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. My goal this morning is to rightly interpret and explain these seven verses in context and to bring them to bear in each of our lives for the purpose of loving Jesus, living like Jesus, and leading others to Jesus. And before we do that, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer and then we'll dive right in. God, we love you and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. And we pray, Lord, that as we sit under the authority of your word, Lord, you would enlighten our hearts, that we would know you more. Lord, I pray that You would continue to to work in each and every life that's here. I pray, Lord, that we would have a greater understanding and love, not only for You, but for one another. We pray, Lord, that You would stir our affections for Jesus, away from the things of this world, but completely on Your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that You would be glorified this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and beautiful and acceptable in Your sight. God, You are our rock and our Redeemer. We love You and give You all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A teenager said to his dad, I have good news and I have bad news. 
The dad said, well, you better give me the good news first. The son replied, well, dad, the airbags in your new car work really well. If there's one thing that we can all agree on, it's the fact that none of us like to receive bad news. Bad news, well, it's, it's exactly that. It's, it's bad. No one longs for or wishes for or dreams about receiving bad news. For bad news has the ability to discourage, to dishearten, to deter. It's not uncommon for someone when giving bad news to try to lighten the burden, to try to uh, lighten the blow, an attempt to not give bad news, but more, more likely to save someone's feelings or to not be the messenger that gets shot. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't start with the good news, but with the bad. And let's be honest, as we read through this, it doesn't seem that the Apostle Paul is too concerned with our feelings. And I think it's because he knows that what he's about to say is a matter of life and death. His message carries with it eternal implications. And although the bad news may not be what we want to hear, it's important because we cannot fully understand the good news of the gospel without first having an understanding of the bad news of sin. Understand, however, this passage, it's not an evangelistic passage in nature. Paul's not talking to those who don't know Jesus. He's not talking to unbelievers here. Paul is preaching to the Christians he just prayed for in chapter 1. Remember, Paul in chapter 1 prayed that God would enlighten the hearts of these Christians so that they might know God better. And now he's reminding them of the tragic condition they were once in before they trusted in Christ for salvation. You see, to know God better, you must know something about yourself. It's imperative to understand the depths of your depravity. It's imperative to know the truth that you have absolutely no hope in getting right with God outside of God working through Jesus Christ. So Paul, in these seven verses, he points to us three truths that we're going to discuss this morning. The first one being the bad news of sin. Two, the good news of divine intervention. And three, the purpose of divine intervention. Let's start with the first one, the bad news of sin. How do you view humanity? Well, there are three possible views of human nature. The first view, the most common, being that humanity is generally good. That there is some good in people. Proponents of this view would all agree that while humanity is not perfect, that there is some decency, some human kindness within them. There's a general sense that people are good. The second view is that humanity is merely sick. This is the most common view um, of the human condition held by many religions and different uh, religious viewpoints. But this, this view, this is held most common by even some professing Christians, that humanity is merely sick, that humanity has a disease, that it has been afflicted. It may even kill it, but with the right treatment, with the, with the right good works, with the right uh, fill-in-the-blank, humanity can be saved, recovered, restored. The third view of humanity, which is the biblical view, and is found in our text. Look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, and you were dead. He didn't say that you were partly good, or there is some good in you, or you're merely sick in need of some help. But he says here, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
The Bible proclaims that mankind is not good. We are not generally good. There is not even a potential for being good. Scripture is also clear that mankind is not simply sick in need of a cure, but we are dead. If you are a Christian this morning, you were at one time dead. How is this possible? How is it possible to be dead yet be walking around? If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're not in Christ, this is your reality. Your present current condition. You're dead, helpless, and you need to be made alive. And the bad news of sin is that sin makes you dead. Now, again, you might ask, how, how can this be? How is it possible? There are a multitude of negative ways that I can describe the guy in the cubicle next to me at work, but dead is not one of them. I mean, people are obviously physically alive. People have homes. They have families. They have careers. How can they be dead? How can dead people be healthy and active and have emotions and be creative? How can dead people contribute to society? How can dead people think and feel? Well, consider Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. God warns Adam. He says, You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly what? die. Well, we all know that Adam and his wife, they most certainly ate of that fruit, didn't they? And after they ate of the fruit, we, there's no rec- record, recording. There's no, we, Adam didn't just fall over and keel over dead. In fact, Adam went on to live an extremely long life. But in another very real sense, when Adam ate that fruit, he died spiritually. That moment he sinned against God, he died. Now the question is begging to be asked. What is spiritual death? Well, spiritual death and physical death are very similar. They're the same in in the fact that death is separation. When the spirit is separated from the body, the body dies. And when the spirit is separated from God, the spirit dies. And so to be separated from God is spiritual death. Now, a physically dead person has no ability to hold a job. We can all agree on this. They They have no ability to have a family. They can't think. They can't contribute. They can't create. For they have no ability to revive themselves back to life. I read a story of a pastor who was doing a funeral. And he was kind of creeped out by the whole situation. He didn't deal well with death. And so he went into the room where the coffin lay and and the lid was open. And no one was around. He looked and he went into the coffin and he yells, Boo! And the dead person did not move. And he said, thank goodness, and he walked out. A silly story, but it proves the point. It proves the point that that dead people have no ability to bring themselves back to life. That, That would be a ridiculous idea. In the same way, spiritually dead people cannot do better. They can't try harder. They can't change their ways. In fact, an unsaved person can't do anything to save themselves spiritually. Just as a physically dead person cannot do anything Physical, the spiritually dead person cannot do anything spiritually. I'm reminded of Romans 3.10. It says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Brothers and sisters, sin separates us from God and it renders us spiritually helpless and hopeless. Without Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Underline these words in your Bible, trespasses and sins. 
And these two words speak to the crossing of a boundary. Trespasses specifically. The word trespasses speaks to the crossing of of a boundary or a line. It speaks to a false step. It speaks to deviating from the right path. In other words, when one trespasses, they are willfully and knowingly breaking the law. The word sin speaks to someone missing a target. Now you might miss a target simply because you have bad aim. You're not good at archery. So you miss the target, or maybe you lack the strength to reach the goal. Maybe you have not the fortitude that's necessary to reach that goal. Sin speaks to the reality that we break God's law simply because we do not have the ability. We don't have the fortitude. We don't have the strength to keep God's law. Ultimately, our trespasses and sins, they leave us completely dead, helpless, and hopeless. Romans 5.12 is helpful as it says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sin. Without Christ, we're dead. We are guilty of the original sin inherited from Adam. And we are guilty of our own sins and our own trespasses, both of which separate us completely from God. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to fix this ourselves. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of good deeds. No amount of religious rituals or sentiments that we can do to save ourselves. Let's be honest. (laughs) Our reality without Christ is morbid at best. And the truth is, an unsaved person, they may not feel the guilt or the shame that is a result of their sin, but that proves the point. What can dead people feel? Nothing. The fact is, without Christ, you're dead. Now, it might be helpful to understand the truth that, there, that even though all men apart from God are sinful, that doesn't mean that every person is equally corrupt or wicked. There may be 20 corpses lying on a battlefield, and each corpse may be in a different stage of decay, but they're all dead. Death manifests itself in, in many different forms and stages, but death itself has no stage. When you're dead, you're dead. In other words, not all men are as evil as they could be, but all men fail to measure up to God's standard. What is God's standard, you might ask? Well, God's standard is that we would be perfect as God is perfect. And it's because of this standard that men apart from God cannot be anything but sinful. They can't do anything but fall short of God's standard. It doesn't matter how much good you do or or attempt to do, the standard of God is never going to happen. The standard of never doing evil or never having done evil is completely unattainable. Think about it like this. Imagine all of us are on the riverbank. It's a diverse crowd and we can join, have the kids join in with us. And so there we have young to to old and we're all standing there on the riverbank. And each one of us, we take a turn. Our, Our goal is, is to jump across the river, to reach the other side. And so we all take turns, the little kids and And the older folks only make it a few feet. You're doing a good job, but you only make it a few feet. The larger kids and those who are in good shape, they jump several times further. But no one gets close to the other side of the river. You see, their degree of success is only in relation to themselves. How far you jump. But no one makes it to the goal. In relation to jumping across the river, we are all equally failed. We failed equally. 
In the same way, we can scan the events of history and see that there are levels of human goodness and, and wickedness. We can, but in relation to God's standard of holiness, everyone but Christ is an equal failure. That is why a, a helpful, kind, and considerate person needs salvation just as much as a heartless terrorist. This is why a sweet grandmother needs salvation in the same way that a vicious murderer does. They may not all lead equally sinful lives, but they are equally in the state of sin. They are equally separated from God. They are equally spiritually dead and are both in need of Christ to save them from eternal condemnation in hell. Now, being dead is probably the worst reality that you can think of. But Paul, he doesn't leave it at this. He continues to describe the human condition. And the reality is is that sin not only makes us dead, but sin, well, it enslaves See, although spiritually dead people um, are dead, that death does not prevent them from being able to respond to anything at all. Although the sinner is dead, to God and the moving of the Holy Spirit in their life, they're not rendered completely incapable of responding to other things. You see, the sinner is very much alive to the flesh, alive to the world, alive to the devil. Jesus said it Himself in John 8, 34, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And so the bad news of sin is that it enslaves. Sin enslaves, which results in the sinner being free to do as he may wish or desire, but he cannot do what he is supposed to do because his thoughts and his choices and his his motives and actions are in bondage to sin. You see, the unsaved are enslaved to the ways of the world, the text says. Look back at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Underline this word, walked. Walking according to the ways of this world speaks to how a person conducts their lives. The unsaved person is controlled by the world's influence. It's systems of of values and and ways of doing things. The unsaved takes on the attitudes, the habits, and the lifestyle of the culture. Essentially, unsaved people are enslaved to peer pressure. Sinners are driven to fit in with the world. They are squeezed into the world's mold when it comes to sex, money, power, fashion, fame, pleasure, success. And not only that, but the unsaved are enslaved to Satan. Verse 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Scripture describes Satan as the ruler of this world. The prince of demons. And the sobering title, the God of this world. And as the ruler of the power of the air, he commands innumerable, innumerable hosts in the unseen world. Satan is working in and he's working through the unregenerate, those who do not know Christ. He is knitting together just enough good and just enough evil to achieve his purposes. In other words, Satan dominates and energizes the spiritually dead. And if that were not enough, the unsaved are also enslaved to their flesh. Look back at verse 3. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. In other words, the spiritually dead are not just corrupted from outside of themselves, but they're corrupted from inside as well. Take, for example, the little girl who is disciplined by her mom for taking her brother's toy and then biting him on his hand. The mom says to, him, to her sternly, 
Why did you let the devil make you take your brother's toy and bite his hand? To which she answered, well, the devil made me take his toy, but biting his hand was my idea. In other words, it's true that people sin under the devil's influence, but they also sin on their own. Paul helps us to understand the desires and inclinations of our flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19, he says that the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. He says, I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul would later say earlier in Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The Old Testament, Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 17.9. He says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Now, you tell me. We spent a lot of time already this morning in the mud here. Is our condition bad? I would say it is. Every part of the human person is tainted by sin. And because of this, apart from Christ, we are totally lost. Now, it's common to hear someone say the phrase, so-and-so is seeking after God. You ever heard that before? They're seeking after God. Now, it may be true that he or she is seeking after the peace or the hope that salvation might bring, but if we are to believe God's Word and not our sentiment, it is only the Holy Spirit who is prompting them. If we are to trust the Bible, we have to accept the fact that man is completely and utterly depraved. The truth that everyone without Christ is dead is a crucial truth because Christ's atoning death does not make sense without that truth. Now it's true, all people do bear the image of their Creator. But it's just as true that we are all radically depraved and unable to come to God apart from the regenerating work of God in those He has chosen, predestined, called, redeemed, forgiven, and sealed with His Holy Spirit. Now, Paul points us to one more truth of the unfortunate reality of our human condition. The bad news of sin is that sin condemns. Look back at verse 3. We were by nature children under wrath as others were also. Sinners are dead in sin. They are separated from the love of God. And as a result of this, they are objects of God's wrath. Now, this is not a popular attribute of God. Most people want to argue that God is only a God of love. And while that's true, that love is also an attribute of God, so is wrath. And wrath is essential to the nature and character of God. God's wrath is not the same as our wrath, however, and so we can get it confused. You see, God does not get randomly angry. God doesn't have a bad temper and fly off the handle. God's wrath is His righteousness reacting to unrighteousness in righteousness. I'll say it again because it's kind of confusing. God's wrath is His righteousness reacting to unrighteousness in righteousness. Friends, there's a coming day of judgment when the wrath of God will righteously punish sin. And the judgment of God is the ultimate destiny of a life without Christ. See, there will be a day when all people will bow their knee to the King. And on that day, those who are hidden in Christ will be justified. Those who are not in Christ will pay the penalty of death. Look back at verse 3 and make note of this word nature. 
We were by nature children under wrath. This word nature does not mean that humanity was created in sin. Mankind was created in innocent perfection, but original sin has corrupted man. Corrupted all of us. David expresses this truth in Psalm 51. Verse 5, when David, he confesses his sin and he says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. This is not only just true of David, but this is true for every person. We are all guilty of original sin and we are all guilty of personal sin. We are sinners by nature, sinners by birth, sinners by inclination, sinners by choice, and sinners by behavior. The bottom line is this. We don't want God to give us what we deserve. For the only thing we deserve is God's justice. His holy wrath and eternal punishment. Friends, this is the bad news of sin. This is the tragedy of a life without Christ. This is why we need salvation. However, look at verse 4 because the text doesn't stop here. In verse 4, we see the good news of divine intervention. Verse 4 says, But God who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us made us alive. Notice first who it is that makes you alive. God does. God did. Notice that the text does not say God plus my good works or God plus my faithfulness or God plus my insight to believe in Him or God plus uh, my baptism or God plus anything. It's God alone. God made me alive. Verse 4 simply says it was God who gives life to the spiritually dead. Now one must ask the question, who is God? Well, God is holy. In other words, God is holy other. He is separated from everything and everyone that He's created. He is morally perfect and pure. God is just, which means God demands holiness. And His holiness demands that sin be punished. And understand that God does not grade on a curve. I love teachers that grade on a curve. It's helpful. But God does not grade on a curve. Comparisons, excuses, and rationalizations don't work with God. God judges by the righteous standard. He judges by His perfect holiness. And God is sovereign. Which means God is the ultimate authority. We discussed this last week. He has the ultimate authority over all things. So God judges sin and He does so according to a standard that no one can attain and with an authority from which no one can escape which reveals to us the terrifying reality that it is not sin that's our issue. It's God. God is the sinner's problem, not sin. You see, we do not need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from the holy, just, and sovereign God who demands that sinners be punished. But praise be to God that the sinner's problem intervened and became the sinner's solution. In other words, what God required, God provided. Brothers and sisters, we were dead in sin, but God. We were enslaved to sin, but God. We were condemned in sin, but God divinely intervened. This is good news. Amen? We were spiritually dead, totally depraved, influenced by combined forces of the world, the flesh and the devil. There is only one power that could revive us, and that's God. You see, we violated God's holiness. We disobeyed God's Word. We rejected God's authority. We defied God's will. We ignored God's warning. But God sent His only begotten Son who lived a life perfect, perfectly obedient to God's law. He lived the life that we should have lived and and have chosen not to live. And He died the death that we all deserve. And for all who believe and call upon His name, the Bible says we'll be saved. 
Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Underline these words, mercy, love, and grace. These three words speak to God's motivation in saving sinners. Grace, mercy, and love speak to what it is that prompted God to save sinners. Paul is, in the same breath, he's affirming the terrifying wrath of God while also affirming God's love and His grace and His mercy. And the reason for this is you can't fully understand God's love, grace, and mercy without understanding His wrath. And that's why we spent so much time discussing that. Grace and mercy are complementary terms. Mercy precedes grace. makes grace possible. To define these two terms, mercy is God withholding deserved punishment. And grace is God giving unmerited favor. Mercy pours the judgment you deserve out of the cup. Grace pours into the cup the blessings you do not deserve. And God must pour out before He can pour in. God must withhold before God can give. God must be merciful before God can be gracious. God is rich in mercy. God also has a great love. And know this, love is not just something that God does. God is not just simply handing out love or giving love, but God is love. It's, it's an attribute of God, meaning that all that God does is loving. He judges in a loving way. He cares in a loving way. He saves in a loving way. His wrath is even out of love. Now, this is hard to wrap our minds around because we live in a time and space, we live in a society and a culture in which love is determined by the worthiness of the object. In other words, we love what we deem to be worthy of our love. We love that which we deem lovable. We also love because, well, it makes us feel good. It makes us feel good and we do good things and we help other people out. And so that motivates our love. We love in a selfish way, but God doesn't love like we do. God's love overflows from Himself, from His character. God acts not in His, boast, best, not in his best interest, but in the best interest of those He loves. Even if the object of His love does not deserve His love, God's love is not selfish, but it's a selfless love. This is why Paul describes God's love as great. It's because of love's, excuse me, love's source. God's love is great because He is the source of love. God loves you, and He loves you not because of you. He loves you because of Himself. Because He is God. And even though you may have greatly offended Him or sinned against Him, because He is rich in mercy, because of His great love, He redeems, He saves, and He forgives. God says, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know where you have been. But because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid. My law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of Jesus on your behalf. This leads us now to God's saving work. Look at verse 5. God made us alive with Christ. He made us alive with Christ. Just as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, He also calls you to come forth. And like Lazarus, We rise from the dead and we rejoice in God's mercy and His love and His grace. This is what theologians term as the outer call. The outer call goes out to everyone through the proclamation of the Gospel. You this morning, sitting under the sound of my voice, are hearing the outer call as the Gospel is preached. The inner call is what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. Those who are Christians have heard the outer call. They heard the proclamation of the Gospel. They sensed the Spirit's inner call and they answered God's call. And now you who were once dead have been made alive. 
You see, Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person, more moral, or just a better person. It's not about starting a religious routine. It's not about any of those things, but it's about becoming a new creation. Now, God, He's not only made you alive, but He's also raised you up with Christ. Look at verse 6. God raised you with Christ. Christian, you are in Christ. Therefore, you've not only been raised with Christ, but you've been seated with Him. It says, He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Therefore, His resurrection is your resurrection. Every piece of evidence for the historical resurrection of Christ that points to the historical reality that Jesus raised from the dead is evidence for your future resurrection. The fact that Jesus rose again means that you too will rise again. Our physical resurrection obviously has not happened yet. But our spiritual resurrection for some has. Which means that today there is new and spiritual and heavenly life that is yours. Not just in eternity, but right now. So God raised you with Christ and He also seated you with Christ. Brothers and sisters, because you have been seated with Christ, you can have hope. You can have peace. Even in the midst of difficulty. Even in the midst of suffering. Remember last week we saw Paul praising God for exalting Jesus above all powers, above all authorities. And now he is saying that we have been seated with Christ. In other words, brothers and sisters, in Christ you have a position of authority and superiority over all evil. You see, because you are seated with Christ, you have the power to overcome. You do not have to succumb to the darkness of temptation or the world's schemes or the devil's schemes, for you have been made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ. And this leads us to our third and final movement in our text, and we're going to finish up here. The purpose of divine intervention. Why has God done this? Why has God saved sinners? What is the purpose of making spiritually dead people alive? Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Underline this phrase, the coming ages. It speaks to eternity. The forever future. It is speaking of the moment when time ceases, history ends, and eternity begins. In other words, God has saved us for something so much more than health wealth, and success in this world. Contrary to popular belief, Christianity is not about experiencing your best life now, but it's about experiencing a true life forever. So what is going to happen in the ages to come? We'll look back at verse 7. God says He's going to display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This word display in the original language means to demonstrate. God has made us alive and He has raised us and He has seated us with Christ so that He might display, He might demonstrate to you for all eternity the immeasurable riches of His grace. He is going to lavishly and wastefully pour out His grace and His love and His mercy on you who believe for all eternity, forever, you will experience the goodness and the greatness of God. See, God has turned on the fountain and He's not worried about the water bill. The flow from God's fountain of grace and kindness will eternally flow onto those whom He has made alive. You were dead, but God made you alive. You are saved by grace alone. This morning, I want to give you the freedom to respond. Shout in praises to God if He has saved you from death. 
Worship Him for what He has done to make you alive. And if you're not in Christ, well, this morning you've heard the outer call of the Gospel proclaimed. If you feel any conviction at all of your sin and rebellion against God, answer that call. Repent. Believe. You are invited to shout for joy for you were once dead, but this morning been made alive. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the work that You've done through Christ Jesus to save sinners. Lord, it's hard to, to discuss some of the realities of this text. We, we don't like to sit under the truth that apart from You, we're dead and that we can do nothing. So it takes everything away and our ability to make things right. But God, You have done all the work for us to reconcile us to You not only to just reconcile us to you, but to each other. And you've given us this, the church. You've adopted us as sons and daughters. And you've given us the ability to not only know you, but the task of letting other people know about you. And I just pray, Lord, as we leave here this morning, that you've equipped us, um, and that we be faithful to share the good news of the gospel to those around us this week. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing in and through us. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.